anybody's keeping count, we're on lesson number seven in Mark today. Seven is um, a significant biblical number, right? Uh, And what we're going to see here is a major turning point in Mark's narrative. Um, If we were to summarize the first two, maybe two and a a quarter, two and a half chapters of Mark, uh, in one word, it would be authority. Authority. We've seen that Jesus has all kinds of authority because Mark has this theme that he's developing. First, he has shown Jesus, he's portrayed Jesus as a ruler because a ruler has authority. But he's the servant who rules in the first part, and then he's going to portray Jesus as the ruler who serves. And today we're going to actually catch just the, the first glimpse Uh, the slightest glimpse of that picture of Jesus as the ruler who serves. Because Mark's going to start to show us the heart that Jesus has for the people. Just a quick review for the context. Last week, we saw Jesus come toe-to-toe with the Pharisees. Uh, They had been questioning him repeatedly. First of all, they said, Why is Jesus hanging out with these tax collectors and sinners? Right? And Jesus threw that back in their faces. Next they ask, well, Jesus, why, why aren't your disciples fasting? John the Baptist's disciples are fasting, and we're fasting. Why aren't your disciples fasting? And again, Jesus threw it back in their faces. And so they got a little bit more aggressive, and they said, Jesus, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And we should note, you know, Jesus threw it again back in their faces. And we see that these are just short, concise responses that Jesus had to the Pharisees. And finally, we see Jesus turn the tables on them. Because when they bring the man with the withered hand into the temple, tempting Jesus to heal him on the Sabbath, Jesus is the one asking the questions. Jesus is the one putting them on the spot. And he says, tell me, is it lawful to do harm or to do good on the Sabbath? And they didn't have this short little concise response to throw it right back in Jesus' face, right? Instead, they were silent. His his question was just met with silence. See, the the Jews, um, they were in bondage to the Roman Empire at this point. They had been waiting for the Messiah to free, free them from this bondage. But Jesus is showing them that they were also in bondage to their religious leaders. That was part of what we saw last week. Jesus was bringing them, he was introducing them to a freedom unlike anything they had ever seen before. Who knew that when the prophets foretold of Jesus setting them free, setting the people free, at least part of what he meant was free from bondage to these religious leaders. He's trying to to help them see that they are in bondage to these silly little rules and regulations that the Pharisees tacked onto the law as a way of making themselves really feel good about themselves. But the freedom that Jesus brought to the people was, was well-received. The, the, the conflict that we saw last week, it helped people, I think, see that they were a little bit in, in slavery. And so what we're going to see today is that if you thought Jesus was popular before this point, you ain't seen nothing yet. He's about to, to get really, really popular. Mark makes it clear that Jesus' popularity has skyrocketed in the region after his encounter uh, that we covered last week with the Pharisees. And he's going to make it perfectly clear in the next few verses that, man, that there's, there's a snowball effect here. A lot of people are showing up. And so we read in Mark chapter 3, verses uh, 7 and 8. Jesus withdrew 
to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Edomiah, and beyond the Jordan, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. Now, if we were to recontextualize this, just to, to make this real to you guys, to make it really come alive for you guys. Uh, We might say that there was a great multitude of people from Seattle, and people from Linwood, and people from Bothell, and people from Kirkland, and people from uh, all over the place, from beyond Snohomish County. All of these people were coming. So we see that there's this huge region, and people are word spreading. And so people are coming from all over to come and see Jesus. Word was spreading quickly about how he had put the hypocrisy of the Pharisees out on public display. And people loved it. People ate it up. And word that he was healing had also apparently gotten out. Now, real quick before we move on, it's really easy to to lose the significance of one of the regions that people are coming from here. It kind of gets lost in the shuffle. It's easy to just read right through this and not see exactly what's going on. Uh, But there's a really significant thing that we have to catch here if we're trying to catch Jesus's love, the heart that he has, not just for his own people, but for all people. That region is Idumiah. Idumiah. Uh, has anybody here ever heard of it? Anybody here ever uh, become familiar with it at all? Probably not. It was the region located between the southern region of Palestine and the Arabian Peninsula, which was inhabited by the descendants of Esau. Anybody know the history of Esau and Jacob and what happened there? Yeah, these were the people who were actually known in the Old Testament as the Edomites. Does anybody know who the Edomites are? The Edomites are the bad guys. Um, the, The descendants of Esau were enemies of Israel because Israel consisted of the descendants of Jacob. And the descendants of Esau felt entitled to that birthright. They felt like Jacob had stolen it from them. And so for centuries, I mean hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, there are wars, one war after another between Israel and the Edomites. Some horrific, terrible wars are recorded in the Old Testament between Israel and the Edomites. And yet here are the Edomites. They're showing up. They're they're joining everybody else who's following Jesus. If you ever need a reason to believe that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, man, he's brought peace without even saying anything, without even trying. They've shown up. And there's no indication that there's any kind of hostility going on in this situation at all. They've shown up. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. But the point that Mark is trying to make here is that Jesus' rejection by the Pharisees brought acceptance by the people. It brought acceptance, it brought adoration, it brought curiosity, and it brought commitment from people who lived all over the place. People are literally coming from every direction. Now we should also see that Mark is making the point that instead of sticking around in, in the city um, and, and continuing to confront the Pharisees, he, he could have done that. I mean, he, he's kind of got them reeling, right? He put them on the ropes last week. Right? But instead of sticking around and continuing uh, that interaction, that, that hostility, he backs off and he withdraws from the city out to the sea. Why? It's because Jesus knew exactly where it was all headed. He knew that this situation with the religious leaders 
of Israel was going to escalate and escalate, and ultimately it was going to lead to the cross. Jesus knew, however, that it wasn't his time to die. It wasn't his time to head to the cross just yet. There was still a lot of work that needed to be done. Jesus knew that uh, that his followers still needed to learn a lot of things and relearn those things and relearn those things. And he was just going to spend years hammering these things into their heads. So even though he's withdrawn to the disciples, uh, with the disciples to the sea, uh, there is no privacy. There's just separation, uh, physical separation between him and the, the Pharisees that he got in the confrontation with last week uh, because they had gone out, if you remember, and they started plotting with the government, with the governing authorities, as to how they would destroy Jesus. So instead of sticking around and, and ultimately risking his life, he heads out. He, he removes himself from the situation. Now, in our culture's mindset, we, we might look at all these people who are following Jesus. You know, there, there are all these regions that are, that are listed, and we, we don't know how many people exactly were showing up, but we can maybe imagine there, there were just thousands of people who had shown up to follow Jesus. And in our culture's mindset, we might say, hey, it sounds like he's doing great. It sounds like that's success. Uh, because in our culture's mindset, sometimes success is defined by numbers. Uh, one of the measures of success in our culture is whether there are an increasing number of people following a given person. Uh, I mean, Jesus is almost like a rock star here, right? He's got all these groupies who are following him around, and they're like, yeah, we're following Jesus. He's, he's the guy who heals people. And so they're following him. But sadly, that's exactly what a lot of churches are looking for, too. They're looking for somebody who has like a rock star status. When I was applying for churches last year, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't apply to very many. I was looking through the descriptions that churches have for what they're looking for for their pastor. And one of the top qualities that you would find in a lot of churches was they wanted to see somebody who had led a church through significant numerical growth. Now, if that is one of your top criteria, Joseph Smith would be a great candidate. <laughs> Muhammad would be a great candidate. Uh, Mary Baker Eddy, who founded uh, the Church of Science, would be a great candidate. L. Ron Hubbard, who founded the Church of Scientology. These guys would be great candidates because they've all got huge followings. How about Rob Bell? He'd be a great candidate. Yeah, all these people would be at the top of the list because they've had numerical growth. They've seen an increase in people following them. But Mark's point here isn't to portray Jesus as this guy who's a rock star or somebody who's, portray, uh, who's got rock star status. In fact, what we're going to see as, we're, as we continue going through Mark's narrative is that popularity and numbers are absolutely meaningless. Uh, people will flock to anything that glitters. People will, will go to anything that makes them feel really good about themselves. You look at the biggest church in the United States, Joel Osteen's church, and there's your proof. People will go to whatever makes them feel good. Popularity is overrated, however, and we're going to see that here. Uh, it, it wasn't about popularity for Jesus. It was about truth, and it was about love, which doesn't always feel good. Real love doesn't always feel good because there's this thing that we sometimes have to use called tough love. And so, no, it doesn't always feel good. So Mark's going to show us how meaningless numbers are in the passages that follow. Let's continue. Verses 3 and 9. 
And he, Jesus, told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him. For he had healed many, with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. So Jesus realizes that there are so many people there, it it could get out of control quickly. It could escalate into a bad situation really quickly. They could trample him. And thus, uh, he instructs his disciples, who happen to be really good at maneuvering boats, ah, Jesus probably knew what he was doing, uh, to have a boat right there on, on the, in the sea, close to the shore, for him to get into, in case the people started pressing him closer and closer to the water. That way, you know, if it gets crowded, he can, he can teach from the water, if nothing else, right? It also prevents people from touching him. It prevents people from touching him. He realizes, and Mark realizes, that the reason that a lot of people are there is because all they want to do is is touch Jesus and be healed of whatever their discomfort or whatever their affliction might be. You see, what matters to Jesus is not numbers. It's not that there are multitudes of people following Jesus. What matters to him is that people are following Jesus for the right reasons. And Mark makes it clear for us right here that these masses of people, these multitudes of people, these thousands of people, for the most part, for the most part, are not following him for the right reasons. There's a book I just read a couple weeks ago. I hadn't read a a, a fictional or semi-fictional book uh, since like 1993, but it was a free download on Kindle. And so I went ahead and got it, and Caleb read it and loved it. So I said, okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to read this. Uh, the name of the book is Imaginary Jesus by Matt Miklatos. And the main character in this book is in pursuit of the real Jesus after he finds out in the opening that he wasn't following the real Jesus. The Jesus that he was following uh, went into vegan coffee shops and hung out listening to his iPod tapping his foot to the music. And Peter comes in and punches that Jesus in the face and says, that's not the real Jesus. I've been following the real Jesus for 2,000 years. So all of a sudden he realizes, whoa, I'm not following the real Jesus. And so this book is about his pursuit of the real Jesus. And as he seeks for the real Jesus, he comes across dozens and dozens and dozens of other imposter or fake Jesuses. Uh, There's testosterone Jesus who grunts like a caveman and eats raw meat, and who's most commonly found at men's church retreats. Uh, There's magic eight-ball Jesus, who uh, you can ask him a question, and he'll kind of just give you a random answer, like, well, it seems like a good idea, or no, my sources seem hazy at the moment. Uh, There's political power Jesus, who leads a movement to create this theocracy, this powerful religious movement, politically powerful movement, and who commonly gets into fights with hippie Jesus. Uh, there's, there's liberal left Jesus who doesn't have a mouth uh, because he never speaks the truth to people because he wants his actions to speak for themselves. There's radical right Jesus who's liberal left Jesus' brother. Radical right Jesus has no arms because he only speaks the harsh truth to people without actually lifting a finger to help them in their needs. And of course, these are all fake Jesuses who are more like their respective followers than they are like the real Jesus who created everything in the universe that began to exist and who will not share his glory with these fake imposter Jesuses. And the book concludes with him finding and following the real Jesus. The fact is that the people here in Mark 
who are following Jesus, they're only following after Jesus, the healer. The question is, are they following after Jesus, the Savior? Are they? We've yet to see how interested they might be in Jesus, the Savior. And the question that that I was asking myself as, as I contemplated on this is, am I making sure that I'm following the real Jesus or am I following a Jesus who's really a lot more like me? Somebody that I'm just, you know, I'm comfortable with. He, he makes me feel okay about myself maybe, you know, every now and then. Oh, shouldn't have done that. A little bit guilty. Okay, that felt good because I got that out of, the, out of the air. Yeah. Am I following the real Jesus? The, per, the people had completely overlooked the real reason that Jesus was there among them. The primary purpose was not to heal them. It wasn't. It wasn't to do miracles and impress people. It wasn't to, to be like a magician. Ooh, I wonder how he did that. Let's try to figure out how he did that. No. He did heal them, yes. He wanted to heal them, yes, because he had a heart that was compassionate for the people. But ultimately, Jesus was more interested in them hearing him than in him healing them. He'd heal and perform miracles as a way of proving that he was God, and as such... He had authority, and as such, he was worthy of their attention. But he knew that it's difficult for people to get away from the mentality that says, I only want something if there's something really good that's in it for me. Jesus wanted, he used miracles because he wanted to pique the curiosity of the people. But that wasn't the end goal for him. Rather, that was the means to an end. Curiosity And seeking comfort, those are things that can be a stepping stone to commitment. But if curiosity and comfort don't lead to commitment, it's it's meaningless. It's it's really just a waste of time. It's not only a waste of Jesus' time, but it would ultimately be a waste of our time, too, if that's what we were seeking Jesus for and nothing else. So the crowds are something of a threat for Jesus Remember, last time, last week, in our last lesson, it was the Pharisees who were a threat to Jesus. Now the people are a threat to Jesus. It's a potentially uh, dangerous situation, and so Jesus tells his disciples, hey guys, be ready for me with a boat just in case. The people want to be physically healed, but Jesus is more interested in healing them spiritually. He's more interested in teaching Now, before we continue, let me just quickly note that Mark is really pointing out two things for us here. Number one, numbers mean nothing because people often come for the wrong reason. And Jesus isn't interested in people just showing up for the wrong reason unless it's a stepping stone to the right reason. Number two, if Jesus didn't have a boat waiting for him beside the shore, people are so focused on themselves and what's in it for them and for their physical needs, that they might trample him or each other. Listen to what Mark tells us next, verses 11 and 12. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God! And he, Jesus, earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. Now what does this tell you about some of the people, at least, who were following Jesus? Are all of them following him because he's Lord and Savior? No. No, some of these people are filled with unclean spirits. And that's why they're there. 
This is one good reason, if, if there ever was one, to conclude that popularity when it comes to church or when it comes to following Jesus is really pretty meaningless. It's, not, it's at least not what it's chalked up to be. Now, this doesn't say that everyone who was following him had an unclean spirit. Everyone who was following him did not have an unclean spirit. But again, as we've noted in previous studies of Mark, it's not like they attributed every affliction, every sickness or ailment to, uh, to unclean spirits. But every now and then, Jesus comes across someone who has an unclean spirit. And how did they identify themselves? This is kind of weird. This is kind of weird. How do they identify themselves as unclean spirits? By saying, you are the Son of God. Not only are they saying this, they're falling down before Jesus and saying, you are the Son of God. Now, you might ask yourself, why would Jesus not want that? That seems like a really uh, good thing to do. It would be a good thing for people to know that Jesus is the Son of God, right? So, So why would Jesus silence them? It's because what they're doing is an act of defiance rather than an act of worship. And it, what, it, what it ultimately becomes is just a commotion. So there are people who are there for curiosity. There are people who are there for comfort. There are people who are there for a commotion. And there will be some people there who are there for a commitment. Remember that Jesus wants to be the one to reveal his own identity. That was, that was his right. He wanted the timetable in his hands. And for demons to pronounce him publicly as the Son of God would not only have taken that right away from him, but it would probably, I'd say unquestionably, have made it less believable for the people. Let's say you've got somebody who, is, who lies about everything. And then they go before Jesus and they say, this is the Son of God. Or they've been going through town and they've been saying that about the worst people around. And then they go up to Jesus and they say the same thing. You see the point here? Something's going on here. After all, I mean, if if you hear somebody uh, who acts crazy call somebody else the Son of God, you're thinking, man, this dude is off his rocker. That's obviously not the Son of God. You see, people were expecting the Messiah to be this political figure who would establish a kingdom more powerful than the Roman Empire Jesus, however, wanted to show the people his heart and to teach them about the type of freedom that he was able to give the people. Spiritual freedom. His kingdom wasn't established to overthrow the Roman Empire. His kingdom was established to overthrow sin in the hearts of the people. Now, there's a scary principle here, friends, and that's, that's this. Knowing who Jesus is and maybe even showing up at church or saying you follow him, doesn't bring salvation. It doesn't necessarily mean anything if that's all it is. Demons know who he is. They know exactly, these, these unclean spirits, they're, they're correct. They know who Jesus is. He is the Son of God, right? But they won't experience salvation. So just knowing who Jesus is isn't enough. There, there are plenty of people who know exactly who Jesus is. They believe that he is exactly who he claims to be. Uh, it, but knowledge... Knowledge doesn't save a person. Jesus wants more than knowledge. He wants obedience. He wants the type of obedience that flows from a deep, deep trust in him that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Trusting him and acting on that trust, that's what he wants. That is real, genuine faith. See, a person can know who Jesus is. They can say they follow him, but if they haven't really called upon him as Lord, in other words, ownership, 
That's what Lord is. It's ownership. If they haven't called on him as Lord and Savior, their knowledge of who he is is absolutely worthless. As Savior, we acknowledge that salvation is only found in him and that there's no other way to get to heaven. And as Lord, we acknowledge that we don't belong to ourselves. He's the boss. We're not. We belong to him. He makes the rules. We follow the rules. He leads us. We follow. That's what it means to make him Lord. So that when he commands us to do something, we realize that if it's a command, it's not something that's optional. We do it because we know who he is. We have trust in who he is. We trust his goodness, and so we do it, even if it's something that we're not comfortable with. Now, once again, as we've seen before in Mark's narrative, Jesus silences the unclean spirits. Ray Stedman points this out. He says, quote, We can be sure of one thing. These unclean spirits did not desire to advance the cause of Christ by their witness. End quote. By calling him the Son of God, they were not trying to help Jesus. That's the, the least that we can be sure of. They were there to hinder his ministry. They were there to raise doubts in the minds of the people. And I can't help but wonder if Jesus would do the same thing with many of the televangelists and feel-good preachers who are out there who say, Jesus is the Son of God in their $15,000 Armani suit with that nice, polished smile. Jesus is the Son of God. You know what I'm saying? He says that if they have true faith, you know, they'll say, you know, if you've got true faith, God will put enough money into your bank account to give to me. There's one guy out there, this is unbelievable to me, He'll say, if you don't have the money to give to me, if you're in so so much poverty that you can't afford to support our ministry, here's what you do. This is how you test your faith. You you write a check to me for more than you can afford, and if you have real faith, God will put that money in there. And it won't bounce. And if it bounces, it's not my fault. You're the one who didn't have enough faith. Right? (laughs) Now, these people might say the right things. Like, Jesus is the Son of God. They might say the right things, but they do it with wrong intentions. Sometimes they do it with deceptive intentions. So Jesus instructs them. Jesus instructs these unclean spirits to be silent, even though they're saying the right thing. Now, before we continue, I want us to notice one more thing. Jesus wanted to be able to teach these people, and Mark has made that much clear. He's there to teach. And yet Mark doesn't record anything that Jesus says in teaching. He doesn't say anything about it. Matthew, uh, same thing. If, if you read the book of Matthew and, and what he says about this, this same situation, he, you know, Matthew's known for recording really, really lengthy discourses from Jesus. And yet, in this situation, he doesn't record Jesus saying one single word. Matthew says, many followed him and he healed all their sick, warning them not to tell who he was. That's all Matthew says about it. Doesn't record anything that Jesus said. And yet, Matthew's narrative, you know, like I said, he, he records lengthy things that Jesus has said. Now, I don't, uh, I don't think that's a coincidence. I think it's probably that the multitude was just too loud for him to teach. They weren't willing to be silent long enough to be heard, for Jesus to be heard. They didn't want to hear him teach. They were there for the sake of curiosity. Uh, they, they were there for the sake of comfort. There are people who are there to raise a commotion, and some of them are there for the sake of commitment. And those are the people that Jesus is looking for. Let's see what Jesus does next. Verses 13 to 15. And he, Jesus, 
went up on the mountain and summoned those who, whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. So Jesus, Jesus is changing locations here. Uh, he goes from walking along the, the nice, cool, breezy shores of the Sea of Galilee to walking through the treacherous mountains that surround the Sea of Galilee. Luke's narrative makes it clear that Jesus stayed down on the shores for uh, at least a few days, but now he's changed locations from down there to up in the mountains. Now, the Sea of Galilee is approximately 700 feet below sea level. It's actually, uh, it's actually like a giant lake. It's a, it's a big body of water, but it's, uh, it's not salt water. It's fresh water, but it's way below sea level, 700 feet. Uh, the hills surrounding the Sea of Galilee are somewhere around 1,400 feet. Uh, that's a 2,100-foot climb just into the hills, But Mark and Luke both tell us that Jesus went up into the mountains. The mountains near the Sea of Galilee are called the Golan Heights. They're more than 2,500 feet above sea level. Now, how much is that? 2,500 plus 700? That's over a 3,000-foot climb. 3,000 feet. And I hope you get the picture here. This isn't an easy climb by any stretch of the imagination. The slopes of the Golan Heights on the east and uh, of Mount Arable on the west, drop sharply down into the sea. And that's where Jesus goes, up these sharp inclines into the mountains. And so the question that I think we need to be asking ourselves here, the question that I was asking myself, is why is Jesus changing locations? Why is he going from the shores of the Sea of Galilee up into the mountains? Hold on to that question. Remember, the geography of the land down by the Sea of Galilee made it possible for just about anyone to show up. Just about anyone could, could have made it down there uh, to follow him. But as he heads up into the mountains, do you think that people who have been following him for the sake of curiosity and nothing more are going to follow him? No, they'll, they'll find something else to pique their interest, right? Something easier. Do you think the people who followed him for nothing more than the sake of comfort are going to follow him. No, they'll, they'll, find some, they'll find comfort from something that's more convenient, something that's easier. Do you think that the people who are following him for the sake of commitment are going to follow him up there? Yeah. And he knows it. And this is how Jesus separates the cream from the milk. This is how Jesus separates the wheat from the chaff. Now listen, listen, are you following Jesus? Are you willing to follow Jesus even when he says to you, if you really want to follow me, I'm going to to challenge you. I'm going to push you to do things that you would really rather not do. If Jesus came to you and said that right now, what would you say? Now you know what the right answer is, but would you really say, yeah, I'll follow you? If you're truly committed to him, your answer is yes. There's there's no other answer that he'll accept. The Great Commission tells us to make disciples by teaching people to obey all that Jesus has instructed. And sometimes his teachings, sometimes what Jesus tells us to do, they look like this treacherous mountain wall. And there's a part of us that cries out, there's no way I can do that. I'm not comfortable with that. If, if, If following Jesus means doing that, let me pray about it. Man, as a church planner in Arkansas who was trying to get people to come, 
Let me tell you, I heard I'll pray about it a lot. You know what I'll pray about it means? It's a Christianese uh, term, and when you translate it into English, it means no. It means no. So that's the question. Will you follow him wherever he goes? If you're serious about following Jesus, if you're committed to following Jesus, you have to have the resolve to get away from those breezy, cool, comfortable beaches of life and follow him into the places where he goes, even when they make you uncomfortable. The only alternative is to face the reality that you're really not as committed to following Jesus as you know you should be, as he requires. There's a hymn that goes, Trust and obey, there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Everybody know that song pretty much? Okay. The rest of that hymn, to me, is theologically questionable. That part is true. The rest, I'm not so sure. It's iffy. Not, Not a shadow can rise, not a cloud in the skies, but his smile quickly drives it away. Not a doubt or a fear, not a sigh or a tear can abide while we trust and obey. Boy, that, that sure makes it sound like it's easy to follow Jesus, doesn't it? It really does. No, it's, it's not easy to follow Jesus. Do you really think that as he's scaling this mountain and looking back at his followers, he's, he's just continually smiling at them? Come on, guys, I, I know you can do it. <laughs> you think that's what he's doing? I, I, I don't think so. I, I, I kind of doubt it. See, Jesus feared. There's, there's not an incompatibility between faith and fear. Jesus feared. On the night before he was, he was hung on the cross, he was afraid. He's asking the Father, if there's another way, please give me another way, but not my will, but your will. He's scared. He's scared. You see, faith doesn't eliminate fear. If it did, we could call anybody who's you know, just a crazy daredevil who is constantly staring fear in the face and doing it anyway, and I'm not afraid to, you know, to, to base jump off of this 2,000-foot you know, cliff. We could call that person a, a person of great faith. No, that, that's, that's, faith grants you the courage to face your fears. Faith says, okay, you've got this fear, but it nudges you to act according to what Jesus has commanded anyway. So no, there, there's, not an inc- there's, there's a total compatibility with faith and fear. It's okay to be afraid. It's a normal human emotion that even Jesus felt. When you're not comfortable with something that he's instructed you to do, faith is what gives you that nudge to do it anyway, even when you're feeling scared, even when you'd rather not do it. So are you following Jesus for the sake of curiosity? Are you following Jesus because you're comfortable with what parts of, his, uh, of the narratives that you're comfortable with? Or are you following him because you're committed to him? That's the question that I want you guys to hold on to today. This week I was, I was reading about a Chinese evangelist um, named Li, who at one point in 1995 was making weekly trips to this Chinese village to distribute Christian literature, and he had to be secretive about this because distributing Christian literature uh, in China was illegal, and in this area of China, it was greatly frowned upon, and the the rules were enforced. Uh, In fact, he had actually been warned by a friend that someone from the Public Security Bureau had secretly infiltrated the Christian community that he was going to in this village. 
And so one night, he arrived in this village to find over a hundred new converts who were waiting to worship with him. And so he worshiped with them for a while, and then he began to preach. And within a few minutes of him beginning his sermon, public security bureau officers stormed the house. And they didn't just come in to confiscate the literature that he'd brought with them. Rather, they made note of absolutely everyone who was present, and they were beating this evangelist named Lee right in front of everyone, brutally in front of the congregation. For hours, he had to endure being kicked repeatedly in the stomach and in the groin right there in front of everyone. The young women who were present, you can guess what happened to them. You can guess what the officers were doing to them right in front of everyone. This is 15 years ago. This, this is our world pretty much today. Now, after several hours of this, Lee was loaded into, uh, into police vehicles, and, and they, they took him away. And once he arrived at the Public Security Bureau, the, the beatings just continued. They, they didn't stop. They continued beating him up. He was beaten with this heavy club by a, by a supervising officer. He was thrown into an isolation cell with seven officers who beat him until he began vomiting his own blood. And finally, he was beaten into unconsciousness with his own Bible, and he was left, in the, uh, left on the floor in a pool of his own blood and excrement for preaching the gospel. He was released several hours later. He spent a few weeks recovering, and after a few weeks of recovery, he went back to the village. But do you think he was scared? Yeah, he was scared. What he did is he, he brought some Western missionaries with him, thinking, okay, if I've got these Western missionaries with, with me, it, it's a lot less likely that this will happen again. But it did happen again. The point is, he had fear. That's why he brought, the, that's why he brought backup. He had fear, but he did it anyway. And that's what faith does. So no, following Jesus is not easy. It doesn't mean that you won't have fear. But if you're committed to following Jesus, you'll trust and obey. You'll trust and obey. Even when he's asking you to do something that you are not comfortable with. Something that is difficult for you. You'll do it anyway. And so Jesus is separating those who are following him for the sake of curiosity or comfort or commotion from those who are committed to following him. Mark tells us that Jesus summoned those whom he wanted, and they came to him. Now, why did he want this group of people? It seems to me that the most logical answer would be because these are the people who had a commitment to following him. Luke tells us that when Jesus first went to the mountain, he went there alone to pray, and he spent the night praying until morning, at which point Luke writes, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them. That's from Luke chapter 6. Uh, verses 12 to 16. Now note that Mark doesn't tell us how many people Jesus summoned. We don't know. There's no indication how many people were summoned. But among the people who were summoned, Jesus picks out 12 of them to call his disciples. And Mark tells us exactly what Jesus called them to do. To preach and to give them the authority to cast out demons. Remember that Jesus had encountered people with unclean spirits while he was down on the shores of the sea. But Mark didn't tell us that Jesus cast these unclean spirits out. Jesus only told the unclean spirits to be silent. It doesn't tell us that he was casting them out. Neither did Matthew, by the way. He he doesn't tell us that Jesus was casting out the, the unclean spirits either. So the two things that Jesus is calling the 12 disciples to do are things that Jesus could have done by himself, but it would have taken him as one person 
much longer to minister to these several thousand people than it would take for 12 people to do the exact same thing, to have the authority to do the exact same thing. Jesus was basically multiplying his presence by giving his authority to these 12 disciples. And the point of this entire story is that Jesus can take a person who is seriously committed to following him and he can extend his ministry through that person's life. Where do we get the false idea that following Jesus is going to be easy? Where do we get that idea? It's not. Jesus himself specifically said, it won't be easy to follow me. If he said it, why do we think that it's going to be easy? Why? So the question that I'll leave you with today is this. Are you seriously committed to following Jesus? What about when it means doing things that cause you to fear? What about when it takes you outside of your box, your little comfort zone? Are you going to follow him outside of your comfort zone? That's the litmus test. That's where the wheat and the shaft get separated. To have the kind of faith that says, God, I am so scared to do this, but you are my Lord. You own me. My life is yours. And so I'm just going to be obedient to what you say and do it anyway. That's the kind of faith that I want to have. The kind of faith that says, it's okay if I'm afraid. It's not okay if I'm disobedient because of my fear. I'll do it anyway because I love him and because my trust for salvation is in him and I belong to him. That's the kind of faith that you need to be seriously committed to following Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you just for your word that it speaks so clearly to our lives. God, I pray that you would be the comforter in our lives, but that that would mean that we are going outside of our comfort zone for you, that we are obedient to you. Lord, we are all at a different place in our walks with you, and I pray, Lord, that you would use this passage that we've covered today to draw us closer to you and to solidify our commitment to you. Make us better examples of what it means to follow you. Give us stronger faith when our faith is wavering in the face of fear. Teach us to walk with you. Teach us to follow you. Teach us, Lord, that you are more about commitment than you are about curiosity or comfort. We love you. We belong to you. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to make us more and more like you. In Jesus' name. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation 
in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper. in the springtime open in bloom it's that moment the sun breaks through a stormy afternoon stars in the night sky rain on the grass such beautiful moments they'll pass more high great deep more beautiful high great deep more beautiful high great deep.